What had Aelith meant when she called him the Green Knight? She may have intuitively seen Father, seen him as a sort of instrument of justice, a kind of errant, ambiguous moral force, like some unofficial, wandering angel. He could have claimed a just retribution by killing Lucas, or better still, perhaps maiming him. That was his first apparition. But then later he forgave him and punished him only by that small symbolic shedding of blood. Will Lucas cherish that scar? Clement wondered. Will he ever tell anyone? Will he tell Aleph? Of course, the Green Knight in the story was testing his opponent from the start, provoking a violence to which, in honour, the chivalrous fellow had later to submit himself. Hello everybody, and welcome to another edition of Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful literature podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be talking about The Green Knight by Iris Murdoch. First published in 1993, The Green Knight is Murdoch's 25th novel. Our story is kicked off by Lucas Graefe's fumbling effort to kill his own brother, during which he apparently causes the death of an interfering stranger instead. However, in the aftermath, Graefe's eclectic circle of friends and family are visited by this same bewildering stranger, miraculously alive and in possession of a very particular sense of justice. Upon its release, Michelle Roberts called it a big, fat, entertaining novel, as rich and full and strange as one of Shakespeare's late comedies. The Green Knight is dense in literary and mythological allusion. While the setting is contemporary London, we are not quite in the real world. Instead, as my special guest makes clear on today's episode, we are in Murdoch land. Joining me today is Miles Leeson, lead editor of the Iris Murdoch Review, director of the Iris Murdoch Research Centre at Chichester University, and host of the brilliant Iris Murdoch Society podcast. There are links to all of those in the episode description box below, and I'll be talking more to Miles about them and his own work in tomorrow's extended interview. Now, I've wanted to do an episode on Iris Murdoch for a while now. Uh, If you're a fan and enjoy today's show, then please leave a comment or get in touch with which book you'd like to hear about next, because I fully intend on doing more episodes on Murdoch novels. I realise The Green Knight is a kind of strange place to start, and it's actually on that topic that I began my conversation with Miles. It is um, number 25 of 26, so it is a, and it's the first time we've, we've talked about Iris Murdoch on the, on the podcast, so it is a peculiar place to start. I do have some ulterior motives with, with Gawain and, and that kind of thing, but could I, could I start off by asking you for the benefit of listeners either new to Iris Murdoch or perhaps familiar with some of the better-known novels, how does, how does some of her aspects of her work change towards the end of her career? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, they change quite um, substantially in terms of length. <laughs> I think you've probably seen that. Um, so when she starts off writing, her, her novels are 250, 300 pages, and they're quite compact, and the level of detail is there, but it's sort of um, quite stylized in a particular way. Whereas when she gets into the novels of the 1970s and beyond, sort of mid-1970s and then through into the 80s, uh, through to The Green Knight, which is obviously this is in the early 90s, they become much more... Um, expansive. Uh, the ideas are still there. She's still playing around with philosophy, Shakespeare, um, here, of course, um, uh, medieval poetry. Um, but yet there's also a sense that she's trying to, I think, explore the, um, a, a fuller range of human emotion, in a sense, and, and using longer sections of the novel to, to play some of these out. In, in fact, I think there's a lot of The Green Knight that's actually quite, quite, quite staged in a way. There are elements that feel mm. like it could work as tableau on stage. There are particular elements, I think. And again, link, linking back to the development of the um, uh, Gawain poem that actually does Im- impact quite significantly on this book. At the beginning of last year, I made an episode on Gawain and the Green Knight. And for one reason or another, I haven't really stopped thinking about that poem. So full disclosure, the reason we're talking about Iris Murdoch's 25th novel first is because of its connection to Gawain. Now, as Miles and I will discuss, this is no straightforward retelling of the poem, with modern characters serving as simple avatars of Gawain, Arthur, Lady Bertillac, and so on. 
Instead, there are a host of other allusions and references that distort and complicate these characters. But as a route into the novel, and to best explain my initial interest in it, I thought I'd describe for you some of the ways the Green Knight reflects or plays with the poem that it takes its name from. So what the novel shares thematically with the poem is justice and spiritual submission, themes that ripple out from an unexplainable event resembling divine intervention. When Lucas Graef's attempt to kill his brother is interrupted by Peter Meir, Lucas lashes out at the intruder instead and apparently kills him. But by way of a miraculous recovery, Peter returns and visits the brothers. This is much like the Green Knight of the poem, who is thought to be dead after his head is chopped off, but then shocks Arthur's court by picking up his head and laying down a challenge. An exactly appropriate payment is what Peter wants, which is just what is asked of Gawain. Lucas's circle of friends and family function as a kind of court themselves. They feast and celebrate, and they have a keen sense of one another's history. There is a bloodletting, much like Gawain's neck being nicked by the axe at the end of the poem, and the memorable flight of Anax the dog across London, which is vividly described, reminded me of the fox hunted by Bertilak and his men. And just as Bertilak brings the dead fox to Gawain, it is Peter who retrieves Anax and brings him home safe and sound. Also evoking the hunting scenes in the poem are the slightly sinister references to the game in the cellar that Lucas and Clement played as boys, which they called dogs. Just before Lucas's attack, Clement has a vision of the grail. The site of the attack is an abandoned garden marked by an arch of bushy leaves making a little dark cave, recalling the mysterious green chapel where the poem has its climax. The character of Bellamy has a dream featuring a man bearing an axe and feels a thrill of terror while simultaneously thinking that the man must be beautiful. This is also reminiscent of the medieval poem in which the knight, though green and threatening, is described as being noble and handsome too. This unknowability of the knight is reflected in the character's divergent readings of Peter Meir. As well as the green knight of the poem, he is compared to Mr Pickwick, Mephistopheles, the Minotaur, and Prospero. The most eye-catching and enigmatic reference to Gawain's story is the appearance of a green girdle. In the poem, this is of course Lady Bertilak's green girdle, which she gifts to Gawain to protect him from harm. In Murdoch's Green Knight, the youngest daughter of the Anderson household, Moy, leads Peter downstairs by a green girdle. This comes during a fancy dress party where Peter is wearing the head of a bull. For someone interested in Gawain and the Green Knight, this is very provocative imagery. The poem leaves us with the question of whether or not the Green Knight is acting of his own accord, or is a kind of golem, or minion, obeying the dark arts of an enchantress, Morgan Le Fay. Moy, whose name not only evokes fate and art, but is a contraction of Morgan Le Fay, is shown to possess telekinetic powers. Is Murdoch implying that the characters seemingly with the least influence on the plot are in fact the ones in control. I saw that you, you'd uh, you'd posted on on Twitter that you thought it was her final great novel, which was I was I was pleased to see because I I loved it. Um, oh, good! I'm glad. I, I, although you you posted a review that didn't quite share the same <laughs> um, <laughs> enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, what, what in your opinion makes it a, a a great novel? I think because it's dealing with so many of the ideas that she's used previously that it's tied mm. into canonical literature that it's dealing with these um, ideas of the magician uh, magician quite um, in, in, very, in a very interesting way it's not a straightforward or simple retelling of the Gawain poem by any means there are elements of the of different characters um, that that have relevance I think to both the Green Knight and Berslak and and indeed others uh, mm. so she's doing it in a, in a very own way and yet uh, when I was reading it recently uh, in preparation for the podcast I was going through and actually looking to see what else she was picking up on, what other sort of intertexts, if you like, that she's drawing on. And my goodness, she's going right the way back to the Greeks and then and Shakespeare, the Romantics, and indeed further on. So there's um, there's so much in there, and I think she's she's um, she really likes doing this. She likes to put in little kind of um, elements from earlier works just to kind of remind a particular type of reader that she can do this. Uh, so for some readers, they're just reading it for the plot. And she said all she wanted to really do was tell a great story. And yet for academic readers or for readers that have been reading Iris for, you know, maybe have been reading her for, four, uh, you know, 40 odd years 
prior there are kind of callbacks there's other other materials in there and of course some of the characters are quite reminiscent of earlier characters in her work as well so there's so much going on i actually uh whilst I was about 20 pages in and I stopped to kind of draw out a family tree. Who are all these people? Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're, they're often sort of leadingly named, uh, quite playfully named and might appear at first glance to sort of represent a virtue or be laden with some kind of, um, I guess, like subtextual cargo. Is that is that right, do you think? And is the amount of characters a way of sort of representing as many different positions in an argument yes i think so yeah absolutely i mean there's one particular the, the one central argument really is between this kind of um the the um the green knight figure in peter Mir, who's kind of this um i, I suppose he kind of represents this the this sort of neoplatonic uh philosophy to a certain extent that murdoch was interested in and you've got luke and then you've got some opposing him these uh, lucas grave uh, this again this ma- magician kind of uh prospero figure who i think is this kind of quasi nietzschean figure mm. um he's very much um to do with the will and the will to power and yet they both kind of collide very strongly and yet all of the all of the um all the characters um clement but also three girls i think these i, I did the three muses mm. um Aleph, Sefter, and moy they all represent particular particular character traits but also you know they, they are very much echoing back to much earlier, much earlier fiction, much earlier f- and, and philosophy and Greek thought. So you don't have to engage with that as a reader. You can just see it as um, some rather strange, odd girls that are, you know, almost trapped in this particular cycle with these older people uh, in London. And yet you can go much deeper. And all, all the names in um, in her novels do always hold um, particular relevance mm. and a particular interest for those who are who those who want to see it. It's there. Now might be a good moment to briefly introduce our characters, as throughout the podcast, Miles and I refer to them in passing now and again. So to start with, we have two brothers, Lucas and Clement Graef. Lucas is the elder and was adopted. Now a professor of history, he was a yellowish, dwarfish child, awkward and prone to strange mannerisms. His jealousy of Clement, the graceful, beautiful, biological son of his adopted parents, is what leads him to attempt murder and instigate the plot. Clement is now an actor, and despite Lucas's continued bullying of him, remains a devoted younger brother. Having had at some point an affair with Joan, Clement is growing closer to Louise Anderson, recently widowed mother of three daughters. Louise is emotionally isolated and unmoored after the loss of her husband, Teddy. Lucas and Clement are one pair of opposites, the brooding malicious bad brother and the kind, people-pleasing good brother. Similarly, Louise and her friend Joan Blackett form a pair of good and bad mothers. Louise always concerned about the welfare of her daughters, while Joan has a tempestuous, mutually possessive relationship with her son Harvey. Harvey spends the novel nursing a broken foot he acquired jumping off a viaduct in Italy. This ordeal was inspired by the Spolito Bridge, which Murdoch visited and was too afraid to cross. During his convalescence, Harvey considers his life over, but eventually makes a second successful attempt at bridge crossing and ends up with the middle Anderson daughter, Sefton. At the family home called Clifton, the three girls occupy a former drawing room known as the Avery. Aleph, Sefton and Moy are 19, 18 and 15 respectively. Aleph, the oldest, intends to become a writer and of the sisters is considered the most beautiful. Sefton is studying history, while Moy, not academic but clever as a little mouse, is planning to go to art school. Just a little tidbit for those of you who uh, enjoyed my episodes on Shakespeare's history plays last year. uh, Something that Sefton entertains herself wondering is whether or not Isabella and Mortimer, having murdered Edward II, should have had the nerve to kill his son, the infant Edward III, as well. It gives you an idea of how serious-minded these Anderson girls are. Uh, Finally, Moy, not academic but clever as a little mouse, is planning to go to art school. The opening line of the novel, Once Upon a Time There Were Three Little Girls, is a reference to the story the Dormouse tells in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and casts a fairy tale quality over the three sisters, who don't live down a well but in their aviary, where they sing madrigals and discuss art and history. Their original names, Alethea, Sophia and Moira, mean truth, wisdom and fate, respectively. We have Clement, meaning merciful, and as Nicholas Spice writes, Lucas is an amalgam of Lucifer and Judas. 
Spice adds that Murdoch's nomenclature is the work of an allegorist who chooses names for her characters not for their social connotations, but for what they mean. Still to mention is Anax, the collie Moy is currently caring for, whose old master, Bellamy James, is currently forcing himself into solitude in the hopes of achieving spiritual enlightenment. Finally, the catalyst for transformation for all these characters is Peter Meir, whose name, Spice says, is part rock, part world, part peace. I found myself asking throughout, well, so who's playing Gawain? Yeah. It kind of kept changing for me, and I wasn't at the end confident at all that it was that I got it right or that it was even one person. I was wondering if you had any theories on that, or is that not really the right way to think about this book? I would say it's not the right way to think about Iris. I would say that she mm. never takes on uh, particular roles for her characters and then just explores them in, in, in a different role. So yeah, clearly you've got um, Peter Meir, who is this, is this kind of green, green Knight figure. And yet also he's a magician type. He's a kind of a... Um, um, Murdoch's bringing in elements from the Tempest. She's bringing in um, elements from um, sort of older, um, older theological thought. She's making him into this kind of angelic figure as well, um, which I suppose is also playing in a little bit into the Gwen poem. And yet also, I think later on, um, for Gawain himself, well, is it, it, there are elements in Clement, there are elements in Harvey, there are certainly elements in Bellamy as well. There's these, there's these male seeker figures that she has, and she quite, quite often has them in her work. And yet you've also got this kind of dark uh, magician figure in Lucas, uh, Lucas Grafe as well. Um, and yet a fem- the female characters do also have a particular role to play in the development of the, of the drama. So... Yeah, I, I see this novel very much as a drama um, rather than a kind of a, a, a novel, in its, I suppose, in its strictest sense. There's quite a lot of internal process thought that we have written throughout the narrative, interspersed with quite long blocks of um, discussion. And she would do this in the 1970s onwards. Quite often there'd be conversations between two people and you had to get quite a long way into the conversation before you realised, oh, it's that person speaking to the other person. And there'd be... Yeah. Because she doesn't make it that obvious. She doesn't say said Emil or said Clive or whoever else it might be. Yeah. Not always. Because I think she wants you to think about the ideas that she's playing with more than about the characters who said them. And also, of course, there's these wonderful, and I think sometimes overblown set pieces that she's really fond of using throughout. And um, because she's drawing on so much um, else besides Gawain, I think that sometimes the Mm. kind of links to Gawain can kind of throw you off scent a little bit. Um, She's just trying to bring everything in. I think because... I think personally she realised that this is going to be her, her final great work. The Jackson's Dilemma, which follows this, is a much smaller work, a much more condensed work, and not particularly great as far as a fictional work goes. So there's so much in The Green Knight, I think, that she's just pouring in from her kind of accumulated 40 or 50 years of writing and reading and thinking, not just in fiction, but in philosophy and in, uh, in drama as well. What makes you think she perhaps thought that this was going to be her last great work? I mean, she wasn't officially diagnosed publicly with, and it wasn't released that she was suffering with Alzheimer's until I think 96, 97. But certainly there's been some work done over the past 10 or 15 years to um, have a look at how an earlier onset Alzheimer's could have been figuring in her work. And certainly in her last work, Jackson's Dilemma, it's very much um, a novel that's concerned with loose ends and elements of plot that don't tie up. I think here, uh, much like a Shakespearean comedy, it's all tied up at the end and people generally marry off and, and find happiness i'm not sure mm. that moy, fa- moy finds happiness but yeah I, th- I i certainly get the sense that with this novel um and certainly in the archives at university of iowa there are notebooks there's preliminary um materials it's all in it, it's all there much as it was for the previous previous novels whereas for jackson's dilemma there are um some of the notes are quite scatty and, and thin and there's only one particular version of it so i think she knew that she was coming to um to the end of her work the year prior to this, um, this time, she'd published her last great work of philosophy, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, which I think is hugely important for thinking about the Green Knight if you've got a sort of philosophical mindset. Um, she'd also kind of finished or kind of rejected her final great work on uh, the philosopher Martin Heidegger, which she sort of stops uh, writing in 93. I mean, she's continuing to write letters to various correspondents, even into, her, in, in, into the middle of the 1990s. But as far as academic work goes, there's a sense that I'm getting, having sort of uh, read and thought about Murdoch for the last 20 odd years, that she knows that she's coming to a particular point in time. 
and actually she's running out of time and therefore she's putting everything that she knows, not just about how to write novels and, and, and fiction and fictionality, but um, all of her great loves are, are there in The Green Knight as well. I'm really glad you mentioned it, the, the conversations going back and forth and not being able to keep track of who's who. Do you think that's a deliberate way of, of trying to get, get the reader to consider all of these characters in sort of composite? As we said, there's, there's not really a Gawain figure, but um, it sort of makes a bit more sense if you regard three characters as once at once of, as representing sort of parts of that. Yeah, or having elements of them. I think she does this really well with clothing. If you um, notice that Peter, whenever Peter Mir is on, on is on stage, I think it's or in 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 view. Yeah, um, he's got a green umbrella, or he's got a, um, a a tweed coat that's got a little bit of green, or a green cravat, or whatever else he might be wearing. But then later on, once um, Harvey and Sefton get together, sorry, plot spoiler. Um, <laughs> then um, Harvey starts re- wearing elements of green as well. Mm. And I think there's this idea that um, green can be a form of spirituality, a form of liberation as um, liberation. And you see this sort of dot, dotted, this idea of colour play is, is dotted in throughout. So, yeah, I would certainly agree with you. I think you're right that um, Murdoch wants us to consider that actually there's elements of diffusal of, mm. um, of particular characters from particular stories that she's, she's reusing, reinterpreting. Like, obviously, Gwen and Green Knight is the most obvious one. But yet, right at the, right at the very first page, um, we, we start off with this chapter called Ideal Children. And it starts off, once upon a time, there were three little girls. And they lived at the bottom of a well. Well, that's the story from the Dormouse in Alice in Wonderland. And she's been, and and she kind of understands that although not everybody would pick that up, that there are some people that will. And so then we're thinking about, well, this is a kind of a fantasy. It's a fable. It's not real. So right, right at the beginning, I think we're we're not into a realistic London of the late eighties, early nineteen nineties by any means. Mm. Uh, we are in a kind of a magical play space, not unlike um, Midsummer Night's Dream or something like that. We are. We're, we're on a we're on a in a kind of a stagey version of London because let's face it in this novel nobody goes to work nobody does any real no. <laughs> does any proper nobody does any proper graft um, and in, indeed they you know they're all quite um, they're, they're moneyed they're quite well to do um, they're middle upper middle class there's a kind of cliched Australian barm and Kenneth Rathbone of course but most of them are quite free to just almost do what they want and have these kind of expressive parties or singing parties. Um, there's no TV, um, for example, that the, uh, that the girls have. Nicholas Spice writes of the Anderson girls that by the age of six, the children enjoy Beowulf and Greek myths. At eight, they devour Dickens. By 12, they have read most of Shakespeare. Television is anathema to them. Audio, video and disco, just Latin verbs. The comic precocity of the sisters and their detachment from the mannerisms and clutter of the modern age encourages the fantastical atmosphere of the novel. Even though we have one foot in the late 20th century, it is as if the novel is so overlaid with centuries gone by that the appearance of a modern artefact can feel like an archaeological curio. According to Murdoch's biographer, Peter Conradi, she colonised the century and gave it back to us as myth. Sometimes an aspect of the 20th century world is inserted, as it were within inverted commas, into the mythology. Such emblematically selected features of modernity seem as poetically mysterious as the mythical intensity they enliven and contradict. So just as we have relics of the Gawain myth, confused or distorted by their proximity to other mythic resonances, the ornamental landscape is similarly disordered and discoloured. As Clement says, pieces of the story are here, but aren't they somehow jumbled up and all the wrong way round? Despairing at this lack of order, Clement predicts that he will go on blindly and secretly jumbling all these things together and making no sense of them as long as I live. Maybe every human creature carries some inescapable burden. That is being human, a very weird affair. Clement's failure to find an organising principle to make sense of the people around him reflects the author's intent for the novel to fight back against philosophy. The very weird affair of being human was, for Murdoch, the novel's domain. However sad and awful the thing it narrates, she said, the novel belongs to an open world, the world of absurdity and loose ends and ignorance. In real life, that which is horrible lacks the significance of art. The novel is intensely aware of this fact. In fact, particular novelists endeavour very often to close the form by various artifices, to make it more like a poem. And this may work, 
but I think that the nature of the novel is somehow that a sort of wind blows through it, and there are holes in it, and the meaning of it partly seeps away into life. So for all of its jumble of illusions and mythic intensity, Murdochland aims to be more lifelike than those closed forms in representing the bagginess and flimsiness and horribleness of existence. Murdoch identified less with closed-form novels, saying instead that it was with Dickens, George Eliot, or Proust that I feel I'm in the world where great art belongs. Yes, so she wasn't particularly happy with the way that fiction was going, particularly she wasn't keen on postmodern fiction. I mean, she writes one particular postmodern novel in, um, in the early 70s called The, the, uh, the Black Prince, which for my money is the best, um, but then she is very much then concerned with bringing elements of the Shakespearean into the novel. And she does that throughout the 80s and into the 90s. She has this great period of reading Shakespeare in the late uh, late 1960s. And from then on, her fiction is very much infused with Shakespeare. But also, you know, Dickens gets a mention as well. There's this, you know, there's this great tradition of the the long 19th century novel. Um, Dickens, George Eliot, Henry James, um, all of whom I think are, again, kind of background figures in, 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 this, um, in this novel. I could, could I ask you a bit more about uh, metaphysics as a guide to morals? Because you, you mentioned it was re- uh, written round about the same time and has bears an important influence on the book. Yes. So it was originally produced as um, the Gifford Lectures. Um, she was only the second ever woman to give the Gifford Lectures in Edinburgh. It was quite prestigious in, in 82. And she spends the next 10 years working it up into a book. Um, her lectures in 82 were not particularly well received. Uh, I think she tried to put too, she tried to do too much with them. To think about well, how can uh, metaphysics actually in a um, in a secularized society? How can metaphysics actually be a guide to public morality, really, to, to and to individual morals, mm. and be a, and and provide guidance? And she, and over you know five hundred odd pages, um, she tries to work through these ideas. And I think she pours so much of herself into it over the um, over the intervening period. So from the early eighties right the way through to uh, ninety two when it's published. Um, so you can see that it's very much in alignment, obviously not just with the novels that were published in the 80s, but also and um, The Green Knight as well. Mm. Um, the, these ideas are constantly playing in her mind. And you, so you've got um, Eastern mysticism and Eastern philosophy, but you've also got all of her favourites um, come up um, in um, Metaphysics of Guide to Morals for, you know, in, in particular strategic ways. And yet in the novel, they're also subsumed into the kind of the... the the production of the novel as well. So you've got references to Plato, to um, to Augustine, to Nietzsche, um, strongly to um, to Eckhart as well, who seems to be a really st- central figure, and to Schopenhauer, mm. um, all of whom um, are written out in a very obvious and um, particular way in metaphysics. And yet here, all of the uh, their ideas, I think, haunt this novel. Again, like I said earlier, with um, thinking about um, character names, you don't have to engage with what Eckhart might have to say about looking for God just inside your soul and yet if you do then there's a much it, her, her, her fiction gets a much greater relevance and, and uh, an interest I think. Martin Amis wrote that Iris Murdoch is a believer. She believes in all kinds of things. She believes in magic, monsters, veridical visions, transcendent art, prophetic dreams, pagan spirits, God and the devil. But most centrally Murdoch believes in love. We'll touch on magic again in the next section, but for now, let's talk about love. You could argue that to write in the concluding chapters of a long, modern novel that being human is a weird affair is to risk criticism, even scorn. Has it all been for this, the reader may ask, the realisation that being human is weird? Especially a reader used to those novels bearing the significance of art, Novels with closed forms, promising to answer the questions that they pose. But riskier still, in my opinion, is Murdoch's earnest, adamant insistence on the transfiguring power of love. After all, part of the weird affair of being human is being fallen. Pure love for the adult characters in The Green Knight is made unlikely, embarrassing or impossible by their doubts and vices, their inescapable burdens. Love is more available to those closest to a state of innocence. There is Moy, the youngest Anderson daughter, who not only sheds tears for the thought of killed insects, but feels even inanimate objects have a kind of life. Moy will die of her own sensibility, one character remarks. She identifies with everything. Then there is Anax, the dog separated from his owner, heard wailing in torment, 
who when reunited with Bellamy actually screams with emotion. The boldness of such expressions of love can seem comic, even as we sympathise with the likes of Moy and Anax. The other character capable of this kind of love is of course Peter Meir. The injury dealt to him by Lucas renders him a kind of tabula rasa, no longer a man but an instrument, as Peter says himself. Peter takes an apparently selfless loving interest in the family, which is so abrupt and disconcerting that Clement calls it an embarrassment, as if something huge and strange has shot up in our midst, and we simply cannot conceptualise it, and so we imagine that it isn't there. An all-loving moral force, an unofficial wandering angel, is difficult to take seriously, and here Clement acknowledges that he can't quite comprehend it, just as we readers may get to the end of the novel expecting some kind of trickery. By making her instrument of love such a confounding figure, Murdoch points to love's radical possibilities. Kanan Safke writes that Murdoch's belief that love is necessary in order to change our essentially selfish view and see the reality of the other explains Murdoch's penchant for complicated cases that challenge the reader to rethink accepted values of morality and ethics. And there is indeed a trick at the end, as Peter is institutionalised, his selfless actions as an instrument of love can finally only be interpreted as insanity. As Safke writes, the fact that Peter is taken to a psychiatric institution underscores the madness of Peter's stance, which means that his so-called madness represents an attitude that cannot be grasped by the mind through knowledge. The only character who sees Peter for what he is is the landlord of the castle, Kenneth Rathbone. Nicholas Spice writes that Rathbone is a recognisable descendant of Zacchaeus, the publican who, being too small to see Jesus in the crowd, climbs a sycamore tree and so gets noticed. The point is obvious. Access to God, or the good, is often easier for the simple soul, while education may prove a disadvantage. One thing I, I, I've noticed in the, in the world of Murdoch's novels, there's, there's occasionally a, a quite kind of casual acceptance of... Um, Sort of supernatural phenomena which is quite funny yeah. um and strange uh, like in the nice and the good there are these recurring ufos which are just there and not really delved into too much of course it's the children that see them. yeah it's just the children that see them and here there's a character who's sort of quietly practicing her telekinesis um <laughs> it's it's obviously very attention grabbing to all of us except the characters w why do you think there is this paranormal element in, in some of her novels the majority of the paranormal elements in the fiction are always connected with teenagers and children. Mm. It's often assumed, I suppose, in, in, when you're thinking about the paranormal, that quite often poltergeists and other paranormal activity quite often in the literature manifest themselves around teenage girls. So I think that's why um, Moy is kind of gifted in the novel with telekinesis or, you know, vague telekinesis. She doesn't do that much with it. She moves stones about. She mm. could, I think, perhaps do far more if she really wanted to. And yet she's also tied into this much more naturalistic, um, ecological uh, mindset, whereas the um, Aleph and Sefton are the intellectuals, and it's said that Moy is not an intellectual. She does art, and she does, mm. you know, she's connected with, with the earth, really. Uh, but yeah, like you say, nice and the good, you've got the um, UFOs, you've got uh, UFOs again in The Philosopher's Pupil from the early 1980s. You've got ghosts, you've got um, quasi-vampire quasi in, um, in another novel. <laughs> And they're always connected to um, to young women, and I think to uh, not just to adolescence and development, but also to this idea of um, magic surrounding usually young characters that connected to reality and connected to the earth, mm. and connected to. And it's it's interesting actually to think about uh, this this idea of um, renewal within this within this novel, and how renewal is connected to um, some of the young people, um, but also those who are enlightened and, and can see it. So yeah, it's a, um, it's, a, it's a whole area to, of discussion and development, I think, for, for, for Murdoch studies more generally. But in this novel, it's very much, yeah, a, a working out of anxiety as well and about finding one's place in, finding one's place in the world. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's uh, haunting sounds like a, a rubbish pun, but it, it, it does, it, no, no, it, you're really left with it. And it, it, it does seem in both, both uh, those novels, Nice and the Good and, and The Green Knight, it, it does seem like something that the adults have moved like lost a sort of a, a century world that they've lost somehow they're, they're concerned with the world aren't they they're concerned with relationships between themselves and also i think they're looking quite often they're looking back to the past whereas these 
young women are again coming looking at towards the end of the towards the end of their childhood but also they, they've had the disruption of the death of their father which occurs prior to the novel um to teddy anderson so i think that that kind of rupture in life is an important one for a lot of murdoch's adolescents and quite often that's also connected with the imaginings of the supernatural in his classic biography, Peter Conradi writes of Murdoch that while sternly sceptical in so many ways, for example about psychic research, which she deemed dangerous rubbish, she was enthusiastically credulous in others. During the writing of The Green Knight, Murdoch attempted to perform telekinesis, the ambiguous gift that she grants to her character, Moy. In this typically casual appearance of the supernatural, we hear that Moy accepted her gift as a strange, not unfriendly presence or form of being which joined her life with the life of things. Only sometimes, for it had various manifestations, it frightened her. Earlier we talked about how commonplace modern items like fax machines, by sharing the same textual space as items of antiquity, take on a kind of mythical equivalence to grails and green girdles. Similarly, the specific magic of Moyes is normalised by its proximity to instances of everyday magic. When she and her sister Sefton clear the kitchen scene, it is as usual by magic. It is not the only time the word scene is used to impose a theatricality on the action. When a character appears for the first time late on in the novel, they announce in a Shakespearean spear-carrier-like way, I am a newcomer to this scene. When the staginess is revealed like this and we see behind the curtain or catch the scenery wobbling, we can't help but reconsider characters explicitly linked to theatre. The actor Clement, a wardrobe mistress. We may begin to suspect that those who make scenes for a living might be responsible for the fantastical, diverting scenes in the novel. Linda Simon writes that in The Green Knight, Murdoch offers a keen satire on the way we create fantasies and diversions to protect ourselves from moral complexities and spiritual vacuity. For all of this dense complexity of, of introspection and analysis, there is this quite comical contrast with a, a very simple motive at the sort of heart of the events. The, the inciting event of this novel is a, a brother wanting to kill his brother. And yes. when asked why, he sort of sh sort of shrugs it off as well. Why, why did Cain want to kill Abel? Mm. And it, it, so it's it's not just simple; it's almost stereotypical. Is that? It, I, I I found that really quite funny, especially given who it comes from. Lucas, the academic and the the most sort of character that everyone thinks is so enigmatic, having this very sort of straightforward <laughs> motive. Is this because the 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 plot is is less important, or is it? you know, sim simply because the exploration is, is uh, more interesting? I think the plot is important. I think Murdoch tries very hard to keep all of these kind of disparate elements in play. I mean, there's, there's quite, there are quite long sections in the novel where Lucas is just not there. Mm. And Murdoch is able to write him out by saying, well, he never goes to parties, he never socialises. And of course, she kind of lets him off the hook at the end by letting him go to America with, with Aleph. Um, and... Um, have a really nice life. Yeah. And you think, well, actually, hang on, isn't there some, you know, Peter Mir talks about justice. Is there, is there any justice at the end of this novel? But for Murdoch, she would say, well, actually, that's just how the world is. Well, the world is messy. It's just full of chance. You know, she, she, call, um, she calls it the thinginess of the world or the messiness of the world. But actually, sometimes justice doesn't work. And, and, and yet we've all got to find it within ourselves, as she says, to, um, you know, to be merciful and allow mercy to be shown to us. Uh, so that's, I think, a, an important element of the novel. Yeah, and it, that, that's another sort of comic flip of the novel is that the, the Peter Mir, the so, sort of inverted commas Green Knight stand-in, appears to mm. be replaying the um, the beheading game of, of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight at first, yeah. um, demanding, you know, an appropriate, I think he says an appropriate payment or, an, a, a, you know, retribution, basically saying... Do do the same violence unto uh, to Lucas as as he did unto Peter, but then he he changes his his bargain completely and says actually I've become very fond of your family having observed them and I just want to get to know them. Um, yes, I think that's quite disconcerting, isn't it? It is. Yeah, really strange. Uh, if if anything, it's more it's yeah it's more disconcerting than than the original offer, I would say. Yeah, and and I, I'd like to kind of go back to what I was saying earlier about this idea that it's not a realist novel in that sense. It's mm. very much a 
I'd say it is a novel of ideas and it's a staged novel of ideas, but it's using the stage of a kind of a, of a London set. And of course, this, um, we get a very strong sense of, of London as a real place, um, particularly when Annex, Annex who I'm sure we'll discuss later, mm. um, runs away and, and, dis- and tries to get back to North London. Um, there's the cycling through the London parks and um, uh, the, the, the driving to kind of try and find him as well. Mm. But yet there are there are certain things that certainly with the interior scenes, whether it's in Lucas's house or in um, or in Clifton, that um, feel very much as if they could be put on the stage, and that the, the 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 players in the novel, the characters in the novel, are expressing particular ideas. Um, and I don't, I don't think that that's not to denigrate the novel at all. I think it, it works very well like that. Mm. Um, but I think Murdoch developed it in this way, um, in order to hold all these disparate elements together, and to make sure that actually there is a particular ending even though maybe the ending isn't as satisfactory as perhaps we might have imagined that was probably the part that felt the most gawaini was the uh the these indoors locations where everything is said and hashed out yes. and um sort of set up and for the first i would say for the first half of the novel it could almost feel like you're you're not necessarily in a particular city you there are these basic two like you said sort of stage sets and uh, mm. we don't see much in between other than the the, uh, the the attempted murder, that's the, the one bit that stands out from the early part of the novel. But then we have this the the scene with Anax, and that seems a lot like the travelling sequences in Gawain, which are much more solitary and um, and beautiful as well, and uh, surrounded by scenery, which suddenly sort of blossoms in the second half of the novel. Yes, absolutely. And um, and and Murdoch is writing this um, from life as well. She she um, always kept a flat from um, from the I think from the fifties onwards. But she she spent some of the Second World War living in London, just just uh, near Victoria Station. But then she always keeps a uh, kept a flat in Cornwall Gardens in London. And um, spent half the week there and half the week in Oxford. Um, not just when she was teaching in London in the 1960s at the Royal College of Art, but even um, after that, right, right up until her death, um, she she had a her London life, her London, her London friends, and she would often be out uh, walking or certain, or going out to par- um, to restaurants, parties, socialising with all, all sorts, all manners of people. Mm. So she, I think she's one, she's one of the great writers of London, um, with along with Dickens and with Wolfe. Um, I think certainly one of the, the, one of the best of the post post war um, writers of London, uh, and and yet um, in the first draft she got the uh, the direction that Annex would travel in wrong, <laughs> and um, she would I, I don't know if you know um, after her first novel she would never be edited at all by anybody she she, she would just oh really uh, trot along to a, no she'd go along to the publisher with um, these um, typed up typed up drafts in a in a plastic carrier bag and just dump the plastic just dump the plastic bag and say get on with it. <laughs> Um, don't don't touch a comma don't touch a paragraph and of course you know she had her readership she sold very well um especially you know after the uh, publication of her um uh, her fourth novel the bell in 58 mm. and so and she and um she was very resistant to um to being edited for the the journey that annex takes and it was only when because uh, annex um is actually based on a dog that her friend and later um, official biographer Peter Conradi had called um, Cloudy. Oh. And so Peter Conradi got Cloudy the dog to write a letter to annex the dog <laughs> and to suggest that actually, yeah, I know it sounds weird, but it worked. Um, and Murdoch took this um, in good grace um, and in good heart and um, then rewrote that section with, um, with Cloudy actually telling annex how he should have got back to North London. So, oh, wow. Uh, so that's, um, yeah, that's uh, one of the, I think the only major edit that she made to this novel. I haven't checked the acknowledgements, actually. Is Cloudy in there? Um, possibly. Possibly. <laughs> her not being edited after her first novel. Yes. Was that common at the time? It was a different time Yeah. in the yeah. 50s. Um, I mean, Under, Under the Net did very well. And I think that was quite heavily, I think that was quite heavily edited. Um, there are um, typescripts, again, in, uh, in, uh, in the States in, our, in an archive. But I think she was quite upset about what the editor wanted her to do. But obviously, being a first-time novelist, she had to kind of say, "Okay, that's fine." Mm. But I think she was very committed to her vision of what she wanted to do, and, and very, you know, she's a powerful, a powerful woman. And she was able to make sure that, you know, even if edits came back to her, she would always refuse them. And and, and they always wanted to publish the, the next Iris Murdoch. So that was the that was the deal. 
It's the, that's the sort of deal you expect of sort of grand old men of letters in their dotage publishing big bloated novels past their best. Sure. I mean, there, there, there is an argument to be made that the the novels of the 80s and 90s are indeed big bloated novels. Um, the, um, this kind of James Henry Jamesian kind of style of uh, the the big the big baggy monster. Mm. Um, so you know the, the thing about the Golden Bowl or Wings of Dove. I mean, they're not that long, but I think compared to um, yeah, uh, certainly her novels, as, um, as I mentioned, start off in the kind of the average two hundred and fifty to three hundred page mark, and yet when, how? And then we're getting on towards five hundred pages of the Green Knight. The Book of the Brotherhood is enormously long, as is the Good Apprentice, Message to the Planet. Not the ideal places to start with Murdoch, I would say to your listeners. <laughs> Coming back to Anax, I wanted to ask you about the issue of uh, goodness in um, yeah. in Murdoch's novels. I feel like I, reading her, I've been trained to look for who is truly good and not get distracted by someone who might be merely obliging or um, or, or just innocent. Could you tell us a little bit about, and sorry, in this novel, I, I couldn't help thinking repeatedly that Anax was perhaps the good centre. Um, yes, he's the fo- yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. He's the focus of the good, isn't he? And I, and I think that um, the howling... Uh, and and the crying when he hears um, Bellamy's voice mm. is uh, can be really is really affecting, um, and also that the the obvious joy when uh, I think he he scree- he doesn't doesn't bark he screams I think as the, the novel says mm. when uh, Bellamy at last comes back and and um, and and, uh, and claims him again for Moy although of course it breaks Moy's heart I think um, but as does Harvey's um, uh, um, going off and uh, will later and clearly marry Sefton. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, Moy is hard done by, but yeah, Annex is, I think, yeah, a, a, a very good centre. There are varying levels of characters. I think Louise is a very good character, um, the girl's mother. Um, she has to deal not just with the death of her husband, but also the fallout of her later rejecting um, rejecting the offer of marriage from Lucas, um, but also how Clement and, um, and Bellamy relate to her. And she seems to be the sort of this, this sort of cent- central figure, and quite often you have a sort of central female figure. Mm. In, in in Murdoch's fiction, certainly in the later novels, you know Bellamy is a seeker. He's trying, you know, he's trying to be he's trying to be good rather than nice. Mm. Um, I think Clement, given the name, of course, is trying to be good rather than nice, trying to be better. But yes, there are particular characters that do go forwards, and there are particular characters that perhaps stay where they are, or maybe even slip backwards mm. um, in this novel. But nothing gets played out completely, I would say, and so we are left, I think, as readers perhaps wanting to know more about what happened after the after the actual ending of the novel, even though the novel is um, quite substantial. The question of how to be good leads us to the question of justice. When Peter Meir asks for an exactly appropriate payment, he implies a medieval sense of justice, of blood for blood. With the Arthurian poem in mind, we might think this is crude or barbaric. But in fact, Peter's request, which incidentally does not result in an exactly proportionate injury to Lucas, by being personal and private, circumvents any dependency on institutionalised justice. The law's view on Lucas's actions is voiced by Father Damien in a letter to Bellamy. As he acted in self-defence and without any violent intent, I do not see that he need feel guilty. But Lucas, in fact, has a lot to feel guilty about, not simply in regard to Peter, but his foiled violent intentions towards Clement. And interestingly, Lucas's own inner sense of appropriate payment seems to be satisfied by his apparent killing of Peter. When the brothers reunite and Clement presses him about that fateful night, Lucas says, Do you mean, do I intend to try again? No. I think, this may sound odd, but one man can die for another. All that hatred had to go somewhere. Bellamy, when he isn't worrying God with prayers, worries to Father Damien that those prayers are becoming too fat. In one of his letters to the priest, Bellamy refers to Galatians 3.20, verses concerning the formation and purpose of the law in Israel. Justice is a covenant between Israel and God, in which Israel is represented by Moses and God by angels. Peter, who at one blinding moment appears to Bellamy to be composed from light, is strikingly angelic in much of his behaviour. His sense of justice is a loving one. He fulfills what Bellamy idealises angels to be, a kind of celestial, supportive older brother. Loving, dependable and strong. Peter Mears' family motto is virtue follows strength, taken from Murdoch's own Irish ancestor, Alexander Richardson. 
After Peter is institutionalized, the family receive word of his death from his doctor, who says his patient seemed to be kept alive by his courageous will to accomplish certain ends. These accomplished, he relaxed into a calm submission to an inevitable death. It's interesting that you mentioned A Midsummer Night's Dream because a bit like the the sort of dual roles there and the kind of, what's the right word, sort of tears of groups of characters. I felt there was something something quite similar here with the rival magicians and then the two sort of matriarchal figures. Sure. Um, I mean, maybe there's even three, actually, counting Cora, but but there's uh, Joan and um, Louise. There do seem to be these sort of pairings and sometimes they're, they're quite distinctly drawn, you know, Lucas and Clement, for example. You, you know, you, you can't help thinking of them as good brother and bad brother at times. Definitely. Is there something to this sort of, uh, the, the, the wider symmetry, that's sort of like pairings like Peter and, and Lucas and then the two matriarchs? Who, who so, Joan in particular sometimes gets called a bit witchy. Um, yes. So you're, you're tempted to go, well, two wizards, two witches maybe. She is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you're, you're absolutely spot on to, to see that going on. And um, and it's necessary because if you're going to pair people off at the end as you would in a Shakespeare, as Shakespeare does in his comedies, mm. um, then you do need to um, have these particular images and these particular characters that will, you know, um, serve, the, serve the narrative and, you know, produce the plot. Uh, but also I think you need to, at least Murdoch needs to have, these kind of a, these opposites or or figures that uh, shadowy figures and some of these minor characters are quite shadowy figures I think in some regards mm. that do provide support for some of the elements of characterization that Murdoch is trying to work through her major characters uh, and provide them in in a sense with a kind of a form of mirroring but also a form of ballast I think uh, some of these characters make the reality of the major characters actually more prominent and and more obvious mm. so yeah you've got it with um, Clement and Lucas but also of course the um, this kind of as you see, these magician figures that I think Murdoch is drawing very much on the Tempest here. But you, I think you also have it between Louise and, as you say, some of the other older female characters in the in the work as well. I think Louise is trying, trying to kind of negotiate after the death of her husband and also the the whole um, the, the whole development of the of the narrative that actually she needs to kind of reimagine her own identity. And I think by having a range of um, middle aged female characters that she can kind of um, distinguish herself against so that's actually really useful yeah because I, I suppose she like like a couple of the other characters there are, there are these strange sort of transitional moments there's handsome youthful harvey who suddenly has a rotting leg who well yes. he sort of blows it up as a rotting leg um and feels you know done for yeah my my youth is over i've got this you know i've got a, a slightly painful broken leg that really yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> Just keep off it for six weeks. It'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Read a book. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, like you say, Louise, who there, there is a hint of a, well, more than a hint of a bit of a, a frisson with one of the other characters, but that seems to have been long dead. She seems to be past that point. In fact, she she sort of, um, she may, she, she seems to be encouraging, I think it's Clement, uh, onto her, her daughter instead. So it's, seems like the gaps between some of the ages are really quite odd and and have maybe perhaps recently shifted yes and of course the murder they hadn't shifted i mean she was um in her youth and into her early um into her 20s 30s she was um enthralled by particular older men enchanter figures who she would um, then have relationships with so i think with readers reading it now it does jar that um, louise is saying to clement why don't you you know um you know what, what you know more, more is interested in yours Sefton's interested in you for, for Lucas it's Lucas is teaching Sefton but is, is there some kind of sexual frisson going on there and of course he goes off with Aleph who is 18 19 and he's um 40-ish 45 yeah. and it's all kind of not exactly swept under the carpet but it's kind of in a sense celebrated mm. and I think these kind of the discrepancies um and also Harvey of course earlier on with the um, with the older woman um it's 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 celebrated as as um, almost like this kind of um, Greek sort of master and and um, master pupil relationship, which obviously it is um, yeah. for Lucas Lucas and Aleph. So Murdoch is a little bit out of time in that regard, and yet we might say, well, it's just that that's playing into what we now see as this kind of trope of the abusive older man, and I think mm. it partially is. But Murdoch didn't quite see it like that from her own experiences. I mean, she did have some very disturbing and damaging relationships with 
with particular men earlier in her life. You do, you do also think reading the novel, well, I mean, who else is there? The 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 world becomes so sort of uh, concentrated on these characters that the. If people are going to pair off, there's there's only limited <laughs> choices. There aren't sure. lots of eligible men of an equivalent age. Sure, although Aleph and Sefton, of course, have got both both get um, offers from Oxford, so they could disappear and True, go and have yes. a particular particular life after that. And um, for Moy, perhaps as you say, it is um, limited. But Moy's, I mean, the the, the reuse or um, recycling of the leader and the swan myth with with Moy is in the Thames is particularly disturbing. Mm. Um, I would say, and I'm not sure how well that works. And yet, Murdoch, I'm not going to say she shoehorns it in. I think people have to read it and see for themselves. For me, it feels odd and disjointed. But again, that idea of um, you know the, the the raping of Leda by by Zeus in the form of a swan, and then how Moy deals, how Murdoch deals with Moy in the river, and then how she has to almost have this kind of um, shameful journey back to Clifton is a very odd one. But yeah, I mean that touches on a lot of um, earlier points about these, these intertexts that Murdoch's using. But certainly, as you say, there are in in the play. Obviously, you only have particular certain players. You can't have people going and get married off stage because that would spoil the development of the narrative, right? So, who are you going to marry them off to? You mentioned the older woman that um, Harvey's involved with, Tessa. Tessa, um, yeah. We, we haven't spoken about her yet, and she she has an important role to play in the ending, which is a bit of a rug pull after having what appears to be a, a not not comedic but classic comic ending, everyone mm. being paired off. And um, Peter Mir being almost angelic, a, a figure of good and harmony. He's revealed to be a, a, a madman <laughs> and a, but, a mad butcher. A mad butcher, um, yeah. And is rapidly sort of uh, swept away. What do you think is behind this kind of disillusioning end? And of course, later we find, perhaps you don't want me to spoil the plot. I mean, you can take this out oh, if no, you want. Go, to, go for we it, then, no. We know that Peter, you know, Peter then dies, which I think actually is probably for the plot itself a good thing. Um, because it then, I think, alleviates some of the pressure that the other characters are under and allows them to go and have a, a, a life. You know, mm. Peter exits the scene through death. Lucas exits the scene by going to America. And it gives them a bit more breathing space, a bit less pressure, the rest of the characters. Yeah, and I think the, dis the disillusionment of the end, although later, on, you know, some characters do get a happy, in inverted commas, ending, Louise, mm. Clement, Harvey, etc., is to say, well, that's life. Some, some you know, death is... Is going to happen to us all, mm. the novel is saying, and yet we've got to make the most of the time that we have here. And so the pairing, the romantic pairings off, and this kind of hugely, I think, um, eros-infused element um, with the with the marriages. But also, I think there's you know this this questioning about what well, you know how how sex can be an, a, um, a, a a means by which we can kind of is, escape our everyday lives and almost transcend ourselves. I mean, Meadow's quite keen in exploring that in in many of her novels. But yeah, there are. There are characters that do well and there are characters that Murdoch, um, some characters have, will have a depression. And mm. yet you would say, well, that's just life. That's just how things work. It's not, it's random, it's chancy, it's difficult to predict. And yet she's suggesting here that actually, um, not just with Bellamy, but with so many other characters, that you can't go off alone. You can't do this by yourself. Mm. But actually somebody who's perhaps angelic or um, spiritual like Peter Mir is able to go and do this. Um, even even Father Damien um, leaves behind his um, his his priesthood, his Catholicism, and so on, and doesn't want to search for God anywhere outside of himself. I think Murdoch is suggesting that actually pairing up or being in a, in community is actually something that's absolutely essential. And I think that's also the danger is that we can be rejected or accepted, um, and sometimes it doesn't depend on us; it depends on others or our circumstance. So I think she's being realistic in that particular that particular sense, despite the heightened speech and despite the various uh you know strangenesses in in the events um resurrections telekinesis etc everything it still feels true even if it doesn't feel realistic it's true to it's true to murdoch land yeah yes true yeah to, yeah true we, to um, murdoch it, land. it is yeah it, it's true to how how um how she wants to produce her own fictional world and if you have a look at some other uh, London novels, obviously Nice and the Good we mentioned earlier is partially set in uh, London, partially set um, um, in, in, in Dorset, in the rural area. Mm. But, it, but a number of her, uh, her London novels um, also, a lot of her characters in her London novels could all live in the same kind of London, in Murdoch Land, London. Mm. Um, and so there are different kinds of forces that direct people and different, and, 
and generally they don't involve a nine to five um, job or, mm. you know, they often involve being having the time to sit and think about these particular huge life consuming choices and, um, and, and modes of being. And I think in so many other novels, people just kind of characters just get on with it and they don't really, they're not as, as self-reflexive and, and the novels aren't as reflective perhaps. Um, Murdoch just does it in her own particular way. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening or watching if you're with us on YouTube. A huge thank you to my guest, Miles Leeson. Remember to tune back in tomorrow for an extended interview with Miles and you can find links to his work, including the Iris Murdoch Society podcast in the episode description box below. That's all for today. Until next time, happy reading. great art uh, and one reason for this is that both the artist uh, and of course the the consumer too um, as it were seek too readily to be consoled that uh, some kind of of pleasing uh, consoling pattern I mean sentimentality would be one aspect of this which then prevents one from producing something which has got a the kind of hardness and truthfulness which great art has got <laughs>